And now, proper propaganda. If you're just tuning in to Civic Cipher, I'm your host, Ramses Ja. I'm with him again and always. They call me Q Ward. Yes, indeed. Um, still a lot to stick around for. Uh, we're finally going to talk about black on black crime at length. This is something that comes up quite a bit. It's one of those weird 80s zombies that won't die, like trickle down economics and uh, what, whatever, you know, these manufactured panic sort of buzzwords and phrases or whatever. So we're going to we're going to discuss that a little bit. Um, we're also going to talk about the three fifths compromise for our way black history fact. Um, this is something that a lot of black folks know about. Um, and a lot of non-black folks don't know about. And, you know, you might live somewhere in this country where you don't get any critical race theory or better said American history. So we got your daily dose of that right here. So stick around to find out what the three-fifths compromise in. You will be sick to your stomach. But first and foremost, let's discuss how to become a better ally. Shall Bye-bye. we? We shall. So this one's brought to you by Hip Hop Weekly Magazine. Um, and uh, it comes from CNN. And we are going to shout out Rage Against the Machine. Uh, and my guy, Zach De La Rocha. Uh, anyway, I will read. The members of Rage Against the Machine have always carried a message with their music in 2022. They have plenty to be mad about. And after an 11-year break from performing together, they didn't hold back over the weekend. During their pandemic-delayed return to stage Saturday night, the rap rock band was typically abrasive, performing its high-octane catalog to more than 30,000 people at Wisconsin's Alpine Valley Music Theater. They screened images of real-world violence, including an El Paso police car engulfed in flames. Along with messages related to the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe versus Wade, quote, forced birth in a country that is the only wealthy country in the world without any guaranteed paid parental leave at the national level, end quote. An on-screen message read, quote, forced birth in a country where black birth givers experience maternal mortality two to three times higher than that of white birth givers. Forced birth in a country where gun violence is the number one cause of death among children and teenagers, end quote. And then finally, abort the Supreme Court. The next screen read in all caps. Every time we catch somebody using their platform to bring attention to social issues, particularly if they affect black and brown people and other uh, marginalized groups in this country, we try to highlight that as an example of how you can be the change that you would like to see in the world and help to create the change for some folks who are your brothers and your sisters, but may not be from your direct tribe. And uh, Rage Against the Machine has done just that. So shout out to them. That now. band is called Rage Against the Machine. Say it. Very well done, gentlemen. <laughs> All right. So black on black crime. Um, I'm going to take a moment, man. A recent addition to the show is our producer, uh, Maggie, a.k.a. Maggie B. Known, and she's the one that's kind of buttoning us up a little bit more. And uh, sometimes she comes to the table with some stuff that she's kind of passionate about, something she hears, she thinks we need to delve into a little bit more. And uh, we're better for that. This is one such subject. We talked about Black on Black crime briefly last week. Um, 
And she felt like, you know, we're, we're not going to wait to develop this to, to really make this live in our listeners' minds. Let's put something together and really flesh it out so folks know exactly what we're talking about. Um, so shout out to Maggie. Be knowing. Now, Black on Black Crime. It's something that I know for a fact you've heard uh, just growing up in the United States. Um, why, are poli- or why are Black people out protesting police brutality when there's so much quote, black on black crime, end quote, um, that they should be focusing on instead. If they were really outraged at black death, then they would start in Chicago. They would start in the ghetto. They would deal with their own problems before trying to uh, take on police who are here to pr- protect and serve uh, the community at large, right? This is a, this is a, a narrative that exists. This is, this is a reality It's a false reality, but it's a reality for some people. This is fact, the gospel truth, and they can't see past it. So the conversation begins and ends right there because in their minds, black black on black crime exists. And if black people aren't concerned about that, then why should they be taken seriously about anything else? So there's a lot of people in this country that that's really how they view it. And I recognize that you listening to this show might not feel that way. But I also recognize you may not have had conversations with the people in your lives that do feel that way. And so we're going to go over a couple of things that help explain why this term exists, how harmful it is, and what we can do to have some conversations with people who have kind of stuck in the short loop, you know, that was established again in the 70s, I believe, kind of bolstered in the 80s alongside the crack epidemic and the black absent black fathers, you know, myth and all that sort of stuff um, to just basically kind of keep from having to discuss what the reality of the situation is, which is basically uh, white supremacy um, laws that allow Black communities to be overly policed, um, overly incarcerated, um, grossly impoverished, denied economic opportunities, etc. And it just paints this really strange narrative that, again, just lingers. So I'll read. Uh, This comes from ABC News. Uh, Black on black crime, a loaded and controversial phrase that is often heard amid calls for police reform. It's a retort sometimes heard in the context of the protest. But what about black on black crime? Um, These uh, retorts uh, have more recently been um, mentioned alongside, you know, conversations about the death of George Floyd, um, anything having to do with Black Lives Matter, et cetera. Often as the idea that there is a rampant crime problem within the black and mainly urban communities that some are choosing to ignore in favor of focusing on police brutality, right? It's a phrase or concept that at times recently has been used by some conservatives to ask why the same activists and community members calling for police reform seemingly, in their view, don't express the same outrage when someone who is black is killed or injured by another black person. Okay, so let's stop right here for a second. Now, Um, 
I've mentioned this on the, on the show. In fact, you know, our first ever episode, we talked about this. The first ever episode of Civic Cypher so long ago. How about that, man? We come a long way. I'm Amen, proud, I'm Amen proud brother. I'm proud of you, man. Anyway, our first ever episode, we discussed this, and we've, we've obviously talked about it since then. Let's talk about the value of life, of our lives, okay? By, by our lives, I mean black lives, for one second. If uh, I, you know, I'm from Compton, California, so that's the city I'll pick. If I grew up in Compton and someone ends up taking my life, right? Um, There is a lot of things that may go into that. You know what I mean? Granted, there is senseless crime that happens all over the planet, right? That is definitely a thing. Um, but oftentimes in impoverished communities, again, around the planet, people from all colors, uh, a lot of times that crime is tied very closely to economic conditions. The people who have less are more willing to take what they want or need from the people who have more, right? Um, Hitler, when he sent Jewish people to the extermination camps in Auschwitz in Germany. Concentration camps. Concentration camps. What did I say? Extermination camps. I don't know if they're that yeah. dissimilar. Yeah, concentration camps. Very good. Anyway, when he sent these people, um, I remember reading about this in school because I actually did have American history and world history and critical race or what the equivalent would be when I got to college. Um, but these Nazi soldiers, what they would do is they would take, remember these Jewish people were hungry. They weren't treated well. They were as good as dead. Six million of them exterminated off the face of the planet, systematically exterminated. This man wanted to wipe the Jewish faith from the planet entirely sick faith and ethnicity sure sure exactly um so they weren't well fed they arrive at these concentration camps you know and my understanding if, if i remember correctly is they did some work here and there um but for the most part they were gassed and discarded their their bodies discarded um, but while they were being held, uh, I remember this distinctly, the uh, soldiers, what they would do, because you do have to provide some sustenance unless you want them to be too weak to be of any value to you. Yes. So the German soldiers, what they would do is they would take bread and they would throw bread into like the, the cells um, and, the, and the holding pins where these very skinny, very weak people um, were being held. And then they would fight over the bread. And sorry. Um, they, um, they would fight each other. And um, I don't think that's fair because you know, I don't think that they really wanted to fight each other. I think they were hungry. 
And I think that that's a human. No, I think that's a, anything with a nervous system and survival instincts. That's, that's kind of, you're, you're forced into that. That's effectively what that is. You're forced to take that action. And that's not fair. And that's not kind. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, if you listen to the show, you know me, I'm, I'm, I try my best to be fair and I try my best to be kind. So those are the, those, that's what I teach my children. That's the best I got. So if you take that example and you, um, you know, bring it over here to this country and you look at these uh, really impoverished communities where oftentimes my people, our people live. Uh, and then, you know, in the 80s, when these terms were kind of first um, being popularized in this country, there was uh, issues with, with uh, drugs being brought into Black communities. Compton specifically, where I lived, I was born in 1982. So the timeline checks out. I was there and I saw it with these eyes right here. Um, those sorts of things, deliberate systemic things exacerbated the poverty. And then you end up with these now criminals doing criminal activity. Okay. Um, and then you start to realize that you know, just like the Jews, they, the environment creates the criminals. They're not born bad, right? And the, and the people harmed by that are the people closest to them. Have you ever heard of Jew-on-Jew Jew crime, Q? You've never heard of any other group of people in the history of Earth on, you know, sub... <laughs> it's hard to get it out. <laughs> Enter into the argument a synonym for themselves on themselves crime. You've never heard of it ever. The only such instance in the history of the planet earth is black on black crime. So the reason why black on black crime was popularized is because in the eighties, when Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics was, you know, kind of sweeping the nation, um, these very conservative, uh, very... It's hard to keep saying racist. <laughs> I don't, because I don't want so to. So we try to look for synonyms. Yeah, I don't want to like say we that. try to but, give you something else. But you know what it is? But it's very, very clearly that. Here's what it is, man. A lot of institutions, white supremacy is no exception, will protect themselves. They will refuse to deal with the reality. We just talked about police not, not being accountable, not on, being honorable as, as much as they could be. You know, um, you know, the same is true with really big parts of this country, big parts of this country. Rather than saying, you know what, we have historically done wrong to this group of people and we continue 
to do wrong to this group of people. And we continue to benefit from the wrongs that we are still doing to this group of people. Rather than coming to terms with that, it's easier to say, no, let's spin a narrative that suggests that these people are doing it to themselves. And that's something that's different from what happened in Germany. This is why you've never heard of Jew on Jew crime, right? But if you come to this country and they, you know, throw the scraps into the pen or the ghetto or whatever, and we're left to fight over what little resources are there, and we're all trying to, and then of course, right down the street, you know, Compton is, California is a strange place because you can drive 10 minutes in any direction and be either in, in a million dollar neighborhood or on a beach or in the, in the, the slums or, you know, a skid row. It's, it's all, you know, right there, right? For those who haven't been out there, don't know about California or Southern California, at least. Um, so you're right around the people, the, the haves. And if you're a have not, then, you know, your aspirations um, may get the best of you. Now, that's not to say that, you know, black people are going to go out to Beverly Hills and, you know, whatever. No, it's typically the circumstances are a little bit more dire than that. Not you know? just not just that, though. It's not just close proximity. Right. It's also a failure of accountability when the quote unquote black on black crime happens. Those protecting servers are far less likely to protect and or serve. Mm. They know if they cross into Beverly Hills, the stakes get higher. Mm. The level of scrutiny and accountability and attention gets higher. Those people over in that zip code with that money and that complexion get a different type of protection and attention from those who sign up for that job. So those that look like us are left to fend for themselves Right. And since I'm less likely to even be investigated when I'm a criminal and I'm doing crime where I live and where the people around me are also poor, this is where I'm going to do my criminal activities. I'm not by nature of my skin color a criminal, but by nature of the circumstances I was born into, with an entire system working to keep me in those circumstances. So that those who have also always, I'm sorry, benefited from this system will continue to and their prosperity and their children and the generations after them will continue to benefit from said system. It is in their best interest to keep us right where we've always been and to never acknowledge the foot that is on our throat because they want to present themselves as decent people, Ramses. So they can't say out loud, we're sorry for not only what our forefathers did to you, but what we continue to do to you today, they have to be able to tell their children that they're decent people. Those people over there, honey, they do that to themselves. Mm. Just look at the news. Mm. Now, um, I'm glad you brought that up because That disconnect is, or rather, these people allow, um, being able to insulate themselves from what is effectively a shared problem 
is kind of what has allowed this myth to persist. Shared is kind. Well, it's, it's a societal problem, um, but they can insulate themselves from it. But it's based on society. Yeah. You know, just, it's not based on an individual group of people just being bad. And I do want to say this because I know some folks will say it. You know, Q is from Detroit. Seven Let them know. Seven, seven mile, mile road to be exact. Seven mile. For anybody that's listening. If you know anything about that, you know that that's where it, where it goes down. And again, I'm from Compton, California. And we, yes, have done okay. Right? <laughs> I got to say this. You know, I got to wow. say it. We've done it. We did okay. But if you look at, I mean, we can just say the names, Detroit, Michigan, Compton, California. You already know that everybody doesn't make it. You know what I mean? This is why us being here, having these types of stories to tell matters so much more. This is an, in an interesting thing that we haven't touched on in any time that we've talked about this that I think we should. I've heard said out loud by people who were sincerely and genuinely upset. How come black lives only have worth when they're taken by non-black people? And ironically, Every time in my life that I've heard that rhetoric and that form of questioning has been from someone who looks just like you. Can I answer that question? Because I got the answer. Yes, you can. But give me a second. All right. It is, an, it is a failure to understand that the criminal is not the criminal because you look like you. And that would be the very short, concise, and specific answer, right? The circumstances, the criminal behavior, the lives being taken in these situations are not being taken because they're Black. That's the difference. I want to add to that, please. Okay. The other part that I want to add is if police officer comes into your community, executes a black person unnecessarily. It's not, they don't have to be unarmed. It's, it's legal to carry guns in this country. But let's say an unarmed black person. Don't, don't qualify it. Please don't for me. Just, okay, for then me, I won't. You're right. Don't then qualify it. Just unnecessarily terminate. Because we the watched them get arrested person. with assault rifles. So, so don't qualify it for us. Okay. So the police does that. We feel as though there's no chance for accountability and the community feels like our lives don't matter. If a black person, non-police kills a black person, um, there's the chance for justice and accountability. Especially if it's on video. So bear that in mind. I want to read this before uh, we move on. Um, activists and academics who say black on black crime uh, say, who say that black on black crime is an offensive phrase um, have, and it has its origins rooted in America's racist legacy and is meant to demean black people as crimi criminally inclined. Some also say it's misleading. White people are mainly killed by white people, they say, but there is no conversation about white on white crime. Uh, the idea that black people kill each other is exceptional or something that 
can only be fixed by black people is deeply rooted in white supremacist past. The specific notion of black on black crime gained traction in a book published in 1896 entitled Race Traits and the Tendencies of the American Negro. Um, and then I want to read this right here. The uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics 2019 Crime Victim Victimization Statistics report shows that those who commit violent acts tend to commit them against members of the same race as the offender. Um, so that's all stats. That paints the picture. It's, there's no such thing as black on black crime. If there is, then there's a whatever on whatever crime across the board. So do not single black people out or otherwise it's not a thing. Moving on. It's time for the way black history fact. Brought to you by Hip Hop Weekly Magazine. Uh, this one comes from thoughtco.com. And we are going to talk a little bit about the three-fifths compromise. So, at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, delegates agreed that the representation each state received in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College would be based on population. But the issue of slavery was a sticking point between the South and the North. Obviously, this is in the... Uh, begin the origins of this country. Um, it benefited Southern states to include enslaved people in their population counts as that calculation would give them more seats in the House of Representatives and thus more political power. Delegates from Northern states, however, objected on the grounds that enslaved people could not vote, own property, or take advantage of privileges that white men enjoyed. Uh, none of the lawmakers called for the end of slavery, but some of the representatives dis did express their discomfort with it. George Mason of Virginia called for anti-slave trade laws and Governor Morris New York called slavery a nefarious institution. Ultimately, the delegates who objected to enslavement as an institution ignore their moral qualms in favor of unifying states, thus leading to the creation of the Three-Fifths Compromise. First introduced by James Wilson and Roger Sherman on June 11, 1787, the Three-Fifths Compromise counted enslaved people as three-fifths of a person. Black people were three-fifths of a person. This is legally, by law. <laughs> <laughs> it's written down <laughs> talk about what's legal and what's criminal this agreement meant that the southern states got more electoral votes than if ins the enslaved population hadn't been counted at all but fewer votes than if the enslaved population had been fully counted the text of the compromise found in article one section two of the constitution states quote representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among several states which may be included within this union according to their perspective sorry their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding the to the whole number of free persons including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding indians not taxed three-fifths of all other persons end quote the compromise acknowledged that slavery was a reality but did not meaningfully address the evils of the institution in fact the delegates passed not only the three-fifths compromise, but also a constitutional clause that allowed enslavers to, quote, reclaim enslaved people who sought freedom by characterizing them as fugitives. This clause criminalized the enslaved individuals who ran away in quest of their freedom. Um, how the compromise affected politics in the 19th century 
The three-fifths compromise had a major impact on U.S. politics for decades to come. It allowed pro-slavery states to have a disproportionate influence on the presidency, the Supreme Court, and other positions of power. It also resulted in the country having a roughly equal number of states that opposed and favored enslavement. Some historians contend that major events in U.S. history would have had the opposite outcomes were it not for the three-fifths compromise, including the election of Thomas Jefferson in 1800, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which allowed Missouri to enter the Union as a pro-slavery state, the Indian Removal Act of 1830, in which indigenous peoples were forcibly removed from their land, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which allowed residents to determine for themselves whether they wanted to allow the enslavement of black people in their territories. Real quick, I want to shout this out. Um, we are broadcasting this show from the unceded ancestral lands of the Akima and O'odam peoples. Um, so shout out to our brothers and sisters whose land this belongs to. Um, altogether, the, the Three-Fifths Compromise had a detrimental impact on vulnerable populations such as the enslaved and the nation's indigenous peoples. The enslavement of black people may have only been kept in check rather than allowed to spread without it. And fewer indigenous peoples may have had their way of life upended to tragic results by removal policies. Uh, the 13th Amendment effectively gutted the Three-Fifths Compromise by outlawing the enslavement of Black people, but when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, it officially repealed the Three-Fifths Compromise. Section 2 of the, of the amendment states that seats in the House of Representatives were to be determined based on the whole number of persons in each state, ex excluding Indians not taxed. The repeal of the compromise gave the South more representation since members of the formerly enslaved black population were now counted fully, yet this population continued to be denied full benefits of citizenship. The South enacted laws such as grandfather clauses meant to disenfranchise black people, even as their population gave them more influence in Congress. The additional voting power not only gave Southern states more seats in the House, but more electoral votes too. Real quick, the grandfather clauses meant that if your grandfather didn't vote in an election, that meant that you couldn't vote in an election. So of course, black people didn't get to vote. Uh, Congress members from other regions sought to reduce the South's voting power because black people were being stripped of their voting rights there, but a 1900 proposal to do so never materialized. Ironically, this is because the South had too much representation in Congress to allow for a switch. Until as recently as the 1960s, Southern Democrats known as Dixiecrats continued to wield a disproportionate amount of power in Congress. This power was based in part on the black residents who were counted for the purposes of representation, but who were prevented from voting through grandfather clauses and other laws that threatened their livelihoods and even their lives. The Dixiecrats used the power they had in Congress to block attempts to make the South a more equitable place, which still happens today. Check out redlining. All right. Eventually, however, federal legislation such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 would thwart their efforts somewhat. Uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, Black Americans demanded the right to vote and ultimately became an influential voting bloc. They have helped a slew of Black political candidates get elected in the South and nationally, including the nation's first Black president, Barack Obama, demonstrating the significance of their full representation. Um, so, Three-fifths compromise. There it is. Um, and I worry that you're not taught these things in school and life and that you might not know how that affects the, the, the psyche the self-concept, the self-worth, the self-image 
all of these things together, the police can kill us and get away with it. You know, like that sort of thing. These things, they're very, very heavy burdens to carry day in and day out. And I think by sharing this with you, maybe you will understand a little bit more, um, recognize why we push for so many things that we want to see. And shoot, where there's an opportunity to be empathetic, maybe you'll find a way to empathize with us too. The Indian Removal Act <laughs> of 1830. That's a real thing, man. My God. But that's about it for us here on Civic Cipher. So once again, I'm your host, Ramses Ja. With him as always, they call me Q Ward. Yes, indeed. Show produced by our producer, Maggie, a.k.a. Maggie B. Nolan. Um, and yeah, do us a favor. Hit the website, civiccipher.com. Check out this and any previous episodes. Please subscribe to our podcast. We are blowing up in the podcast space. Subscribe, 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 and download all of our episodes. That subscribe, really subscribe, like, and comment. There it is. All of that. Um, you can also donate. Uh, our cash app is at Civic Cipher, um, and yeah, we're really pushing the podcast now. So share with your friends, your family, colleagues. Let them know that we're repost, retweet. You can start gossip about us if you want. All of that. The whole bit. Um, but yeah, and then keep on rocking with us in the free world. And until next week, y'all. Peace. Peace. Stepping the borders with press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander, here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda. What's happening? You got a question, then ask it. The news is just a TV show. Get past it. And this from a quiet wartime journalist headlines. Wake up, refuse, and resist. Like this, like this, like this, like this. We kick finance.